Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce, joined as ever by Chrissy Doran. But we've uh, we've roped in one of the big guns today, a uh, special guest to help us preview this Australia-England series that we've been so pumped up about now for quite some time. It's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast for the first time, uh, Gloucester Lock uh, and former England Lock himself as well. Uh, Ed Slater, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great to be here. Although England Lock is very, very loose. I'm not sure an uncapped game against Crusaders counts, but I'll take it. I'll take it. We'll take, we'll take it, Ed, but are you also counting the, um, you know, the, the, the Colts games from back in the day as well? Is that going on the CV? I, I think if we start talking about those Colts days, Christy, we'll, we'll have to stop recording the pod because <laughs> uh, there's not favourable stories there. <laughs> so, so for everyone that doesn't know, Sam and Ed used to play together. Was it together or just at the same club there in, uh, in Sydney Club Rugby back in the day? What year are we talking, Sam? We're talking 2006, mate, down at Wallara number one for the mighty Eastern Suburbs Beasties. And uh, yes, this, uh, this powerful English lockout on, uh, out in Australia on his gap year uh, arrived. And um, yes, you could tell that he just had a little bit more talent than uh, a lot of the other blokes, including myself running around. But um, <laughs> it'll just show you that uh, playing Colts at, down at the mighty Beasties is, is not only good fun, but you can go on and and, you know, Ed might downplay it, but captaining uh, England against the Crusaders in New Zealand uh, is a fair achievement, uh, whether it be a midweek match or not. So you can end up uh, hitting those great heights or uh, hosting a, a podcast as well. So <laughs> this shows you what's uh, what's possible in this uh, in this wild old world of ours. But, uh, mate, yeah, thanks very much for, for joining us. Um, fantastic to have you on to provide a little bit more insight uh, ahead of the first test in Perth on um on Saturday night. Can't wait for it. Um, but I guess off the top, and we spoke with, uh, with Charlie Morgan from the Telegraph about this earlier in the year um, around what exact state this kind of England team is in right now. Is it a, is it a period of transition under Eddie Jones? He kind of spoke about that in terms of the playing style and some fresh blood during the six nations, but what's your read on this squad where they're at and, and just where they're heading at this point in time? Well, to be honest with you, it's difficult to get a read on the squad. Um, I know Eddie Jones has come out and said it is a period of transition, but but then you look at the fact that he's recalled a couple of old names back for this tour. You you look at the Lunapola brothers, Danny Kerr's back in there. So you wonder whether a little bit of doubt has crept into his mind about the direction he was heading off. I don't think the results have been fantastic. That's quite clear, particularly over the Six Nations. So uh, I just wonder whether he's changed tact a little bit uh, and decided to go with a little bit of, of old blood, if you like. So I, I've not been clear. They had a, they had quite a good autumn series. I went and watched the, the game against Australia, actually, back in November, and they obviously did very well. They had they beat South Africa. They obviously did well against Australia. Um, and then, you know, you can't deny they lost people like Owen Farrell. He wasn't available for Six Nations. Um, and the team did take a different direction. Um, so it, I, I don't think you can get a read on it, which I think makes the series even more exciting. It's, a, it's an interesting one. You look at the Vunapala brothers and they had such a massive influence last time that they came down under in 2016, and as did Danny Kerr off the bench. Um, tell me, Ed, do you think that Danny, like, I think it's great, and, and if he plays, and I think he probably will start, given that Ben Youngs isn't here, but it, it probably does help the Harlequins connection there at nine and 10, but do you think that Danny would have come had, 
had Ben Youngs been available or picked? Who knows? That's a good it, question. It, it might have um, been a little bit of an element of him being dropped potentially or given the, the summer off because maybe your form's not quite there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think Ben Youngs has been a staple player, hasn't he, in, in this England side for a long time. And um, there's been a lot of personal stuff going on with his family. So um, he hasn't shied away from that in the past. You know, he's, he's pulled himself out of Lions tours, for example, because of that. And again, there are personal issues there. So I think if Ben had, had gone on the tour, I imagine he would have been the, the start of nine, whether that would have influenced Danny Kerr going or not, I'm not sure. But if you look at uh, um, Harry Randall, for example, who has been starting a lot of games recently, it, I, I wonder if there's a little bit of doubt about uh, whether he can see England through the series and with a win at the end of it. Um, it don't get me wrong, he's a fantastic player, but he's still extremely young. Uh, and he does play a different style of rugby to, a, to the one I think Eddie Jones wants from his England side. So... Danny Kerr's capable of playing that that part of the game, but he's also capable of, of managing a game, a little bit like Nick White, I think, from, from Australia. I think they're quite similar players and very, very experienced heads uh, and can read the game and know what, what needs doing at a certain time. So I think that's where Danny Kerr will, will really add to the England squad. Ed, you mentioned the Vernapola brothers there. have uh, kind of been stalwarts of the Eddie tenure, apart from this last little period, what did Billy show for Saracens in these, I guess, these final few weeks of the the premiership that suggested to you that he's back to that really damaging ball running number eight best that um, that made him one of the best back rowers uh, probably in the game there for a good period? Yeah, well, we'll start with, I'll, I'll start with Mako quickly because I, I think I was never quite sure why uh, Mako came out of the squad, to be honest with you, because his form... Uh, ever since he was dropped, has been fantastic. And I think alongside Ellis Genge, he's probably a player England have missed. Um, so I'm pleased to see him back in. I think with the choice of having him and Ellis Genge is, is going to be huge for England, especially against Wallaby's front row, which I don't think is the strongest. Um, but going back to Billy, it's, it's a number of involvements. I think if you read between the lines what Eddie Jones has been saying over the last few months, and particularly the last couple of weeks since Billy's been picked, as he wanted to see more from him around the park. He felt that he'd have a couple of impacts and then maybe drop out of the game. If you watch the, the English Premiership final, number of carries, number of times he got his hands on the ball, he'd sit in the backfield receiving receiving kicks. He was just all over the place. And I think that's, that's what Eddie Jones has kind of been questioning. Whether... Um, whether he has been as bad as I think Eddie Jones has made out is maybe a different story because I actually, again, like his brother, you know, he's been fantastic for Saracens and, uh, you know, they're a massive reason as to why Saracens come up from the championship, finish second in the, in the premiership and get to a final. It's because of those two guys. So I don't know whether it was just trying to make a point to Billy, but I, I don't think he dropped off to the extent that he deserved to be dropped. So... Is someone that England have definitely missed, and he'll be a huge part of, of the squad this this series. I think it's an it's an interesting one because you look at the English Premiership, and well, we, we we see the Super Rugby, and it goes through about 13, 14 rounds finals. It's a you know it's a sprint more than anything, and then you look at the Premiership, and it's an absolute slog. It's a grind like the French Top Fourteen, and like you talk to some players, and they go, "Geez, it is like it's brutal," and I know that Wallabies think that, and 
maybe there's a couple of inside backs that think that that I know of too. But but I just wonder whether or not there's an element of, well, if we're going to get to the next World Cup, we don't want to be playing the Bunapolo brothers every week in Test Rugby because maybe, you know, they won't get there physically and mentally. They might not be there if they're having to play every week, you know, for 10 months of the year for their respective club sides. And in the case of the Bunapolo brothers, the Saracens, but then in addition to that, the Test matches. So do you, do you see that? that when when a player comes back from England perhaps that sometimes they aren't quite mentally and physically where they need to be because it is such a, a draining long season for them uh, it is difficult I think obviously the more you do it the more experience you have managing it uh, it depends on on your club as well about how they manage you through that period time off how they manage you over a season we, we had a lot of in the premiership there was a lot of kind of gaps in the calendar where we had a week or two weeks, particularly towards the end of the season. So players were, were actually getting a lot of rest, even though the season on paper looks extremely right. long. Right. There are a lot of gaps in between where they were getting rest. But, you know, it's no secret that players go away, you know, to England camp and it's extremely tiring. You know, they worked extremely yeah. hard. And, they're, they're and rightly so, you know, <laughs> they're flogged. Yeah. yeah, yeah, more or less. But, you know, no one will, you know, to be honest with you, no one will, will come out and say that because, you know, they want to be international players, but you don't, you know, you don't have to go too far to have a few conversations and know that it's extremely difficult making that step up to the England camp. And it's probably why you see some players go up maybe for a, for a couple of squads and then disappear and, and maybe not, not come back in because um, the expectation from Eddie Jones is, is huge. Um, and it takes a kind of certain type of player to be able to to stand that. But yeah, along alongside a, a long Premiership season to finish with a tour to come home, it, you know, it's it's a mental challenge. And that that's the the thing with the Premiership is it, because it's so long. Uh, if you don't have the right mental state for it, it can be very very difficult. Um, but as I say, it's uh, it's a great competition in terms of any team can beat anyone on any day and that makes it very exciting to watch but it's just a different challenge to to what what you guys have done in the southern hemisphere ed um you mentioned the 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 expectations of of eddie jones um when players do come into camp and the physical workload and I guess there's a different part with Eddie's coaching style. It's also the the mental workload that he puts on players and and almost little mental mind games that he uses to, in his words, motivate, I guess, challenge. Is there a school of thought, I don't know, in the wider parts of, of English rugby or, or players you talk to that perhaps that is starting to wear thin from from Eddie? Are they is this still a united camp? Does does everyone still believe that um yeah, he's the he's the man to to take them forward at this point, because we know things kind of fell apart down here in Australia with, uh, with bits and pieces along those same lines in, in 2005. Um, clearly he's a different coach to what he was now, but he still uses these same little tactics in part to, to what he sees uh, to get the best out of players. Um, is that still the best way to get the best out of this England group? Um, I think, you know, with, with that approach and I, you know, I've got to be careful how, how I put this. Um, I think with that approach, you know, you are probably going to lose some players, 
because it is, you know, it is a mental challenge. And I guess uh, with, with that approach, you never quite know where you stand as a player. So unless you are kind of the cream of the crop, those kind of 10, 11, 12 players that are absolutely outstanding from an ability point of view, underneath that, sometimes it can be difficult, I think, from, from, what, you know, from what I've seen and what I've heard. I think it can be difficult to find your place in that England squad because of that, because of that challenge. Now, you know, there's kind of two two arguments with it. One, one side is, it's quite simple. It's fairly black and white. You go in there, you do what's asked of you, you try and do a bit more and you stick to it. You don't let anything distract you. You don't let any words get to you. You don't let any mind games get inside your head and you just crack on. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. And it's as, as simple as that. We, we, you know, we all know on, on this podcast that not everyone works like that. Um, and, you know, I've, do, I've just been doing a small bit of coaching with, with a Gloucester under 18s, for example. And you start to realise, you know, I, I'm fairly kind of one direction in, in how I approach the game. You know, this is what we've got to do. OK, so let's go and do it. But that's not how everyone works. That's not how everyone operates. Quade Cooper's an example, I guess, in the wall of this squad, isn't he? That, you know, sure. he's a bit more creative. Um, so for some of those guys that aren't cemented in the England squad, I think it is a, a challenging place to go because when they're not on the training pitch, they're probably in their own heads wondering, where do I sit in this squad? Am I going to get an opportunity? Um, so it can be difficult. Is it a United camp? I think it is. Um, I think they've got some good leaders in there. I think Courtney Laws, for example, has really come to the front. Um, in the absence of Owen Farrell. And I think he is a, a personality that uh, certainly brings out the best in some of those younger guys, gives them the confidence, because he's a laid-back guy, Courtney, as well as an exceptional player. So he brings out the best in those younger guys, allows them to kind of be a bit more free, if you like. Um, so I think that balance of having characters like him and, and then people like Owen Farrell, who drive performance massively, um, is a quite a good dynamic in that England squad. We'll let you get your breath at, uh, for the, just the next moment, Ed. You've been, um, been firing them out. But it's interesting, like, they're on the captaincy and the leadership because oh, I think bringing back the Bunapola brothers and, the, and Danny Kerr is huge because Danny Kerr particularly hasn't, you know, four years out uh, in, you know, the test wilderness, um, been carving up the premiership and having a lot of fun, I think he'll probably bring that element of ruthlessness and determination to potentially finish on a high. And you never know, get to the next World Cup. You never know if he has a cracking series. Yeah. But from a leadership perspective, on a, on a Zoom call with Eddie Jones last Friday, and it was interesting that still hasn't named a captain yet. Now, you might have an inside word because the captain has been named internally, but... Um, you get the feeling that Owen Farrell is not going to be the captain. And, and I wonder if that's because Manu, when Manu Tuolangi does come back eventually, that he will come into the midfield. And does that leave Owen Farrell perhaps vulnerable in the starting side with, with Marcus Smith now emerging as the 10? But I'll be curious to see whether or not, if indeed he does look past Owen, to, if he goes to Courtney Laws or if he goes to Tom Curry, because... Tom Curry's out and out in your best side every day of the week, either at seven or at eight if Billy's not there. But Courtney Laws is one of the better forwards going around. He's 
immense. He was great on the tour last time. He keeps getting better and better. Um, so that'll be fascinating, I think. Sam, before we move away from Eddie Jones, you're an Aussie. You've been covering the game for a long, long time. Tell me, where does Eddie, you think, rank in Australia's coaches? Because I was thinking just beforehand, I was freshening up for this podcast, having a shower, and I was thinking, Eddie Jones, he potentially will come back to Australia following the 23 World Cup, and I assume he will take England to that World Cup. You never know. Dare to dream. Could he coach the Wallabies to a, a 27 World Cup and then therefore have a you know, he's coached the Wallabies in 2003 and 27. I don't think it will happen, but it would be extraordinary that this guy has been coaching at an international level for such a long time, nigh on three decades, potentially come 27. And that he just gets such great kicks out of it still after all this time. Like, you, I mean, I, I know, you know, you, you move jobs in, in all, you know, employment spheres and, um, just like we move from, you know, news company to news company or whatever, that, that Eddie's clearly gone from, you know, the Wallabies to South Africa and Suntory and and uh, and Japan and for the Stormers for about two days. And then um, on to England, of course, when uh, the RFU came calling after 2015. And I mean, you've got to admire that, that he still, you know, gets the absolute love and, and joy out of it. And you and yeah. I was, were standing on um, Coogee Oval on, on Friday afternoon with, uh, with Mark Eller, who we rarely get to see uh, in Australian rugby too much these days, but um, a special moment to see him uh, have the, with the cook cup dumped uh, to have the, uh, the Eller mobs trophy and to, and to have a few words with, with him about playing on Coogee Oval, Ed, you know, Coogee Oval having played against Randwick down there for the mighty beasties while you're out here in Sydney. And um, just the, uh, a few of, of Ella's stories about growing up with, with Eddie and of course, you know, Glenn's then been part of, was part of England's coaching team here in, in 2016. So, I mean, from a, from an off-field p- perspective for us, it's just a, a fascinating, you know, series that, yeah. that Eddie's back once again um, with, you know, an eight and no record against the Wallabies uh, as England coach, which is phenomenal. I, you know, no other team has that. I was doing it today. Clearly beat France last year and have had an all blacks a win over the all blacks under Dave Rennie, two wins over the Springboks last year. And, and I mean, you, you take those Wales and Scotland games defeats to, to, to end last year with a grain of salt. I think they, they clearly were, a, uh, were in both those games to win, but they just haven't got near England at all under Eddie Jones. And, um, you know, it was kind of the beginning of the end for, for Michael Checker there six years ago, having done his, uh, his near million dollar deal. Um, it uh, was three straight defeats and, uh, and the Wallabies were never quite the same bar the odd win over the, the All Blacks since then. So, mate, yeah, look, you, you tip your hat to Eddie. Um, he's been up to his old tricks already, as we heard last week, um, talking about the aggressive Australian media and that the fans will, will be into him. Now, I've never seen a... I've been, as you said, covering the game here for almost 20 years now, and um, I've never seen what I would describe a rabid Australian rugby crowd. So um, it's it's great stuff from from Eddie, and, uh, and it's just set up for a fascinating opening game on on Saturday night um just before we leave England with Ed um mate what um how did you see Marcus Smith uh this year in the premiership obviously was phenomenal and sorry phenomenal that word is leading uh leading sorry leading Harlequins to the title the 2021 title um I no way suggest there was a bit of second year syndrome but did some of the teams catch up to him a bit over this previous season obviously 
Quinn's still making the semifinals, but um, was he perhaps not as dangerous or ruthless as he had been the year before? No, he was, he was just as good, I thought. Um, you know, certainly you're right around teams were a lot more cautious of him. Probably clued um, in, wouldn't they? But he has... Yeah, yeah. Um, and he found a, you know, a different way around that. Um, I think it's going to be interesting with Marcus Smith because the way he likes to play the game, again, is different to the style of England. And are England trying to adapt to Marcus Smith or is Marcus Smith trying to adapt to England? And he's had some really good moments in England, don't get me wrong, but I still think we haven't seen the best of him um, from an England point of view. So how that unfolds is going to be really, really interesting. But from, from a Harlequin's point of view, he's, he has been outstanding all year and he still is, you know, that, that maverick player um, that seems to have kind of an answer to almost every situation. But uh, I do want to see that in an England shirt um, or certainly want to see it more consistently anyway. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think you only need to have a look at that highlights reel from maybe a, less than a month ago when, when Marcus Smith set up Louis Liner and, and they ran about 100 metres to score. Was it against Exeter? Uh, well, there's, he scored a good try against, or set one up against Exeter, but Montpellier. Yeah, there was that too. Uh, yeah. Was that outstanding? I think Danny Kerr kept it in on the sideline. He ran through. I don't know if that's the one you're talking about, but no, that's the one but, that stands but, out but, in my mind. But, but, it's, I, I think there's a lot of parallels there with, with Quade Cooper because we've seen Quade last year. He came back and he was very measured, very reserved. He was almost just a distributor. It was, it was a very unlike Quade Cooper that we'd imagined from 10 years ago when he was lighting up Suncorp Stadium with, with the Queensland Reds. I just, you know... I, is test like we, we know that Bowden Barrett has that capacity to be able to have that running game as a number 10, but for most international tens, it, it really doesn't seem like the the Mavericks, the those kind of tens have a, a long kind of standing in the game because because we know that how defensive orientated it is, the the rush defense, mm. it, it doesn't necessarily always allow for those freakish kind of um, attackers like what we see at, at uh, you know, Super Rugby or indeed in the Premiership. Is that fair? And do you think that's the case, guys? I think certainly we've we've seen that with Quaid and, and, you know, he had that one breakout series, sorry, season for the Reds in Super Rugby, didn't he, that we, that we all remember in, in 2011 when he led them to the title. And some of the skills he showed that year were just, you know, off the planet. And and as much as we want to see more of those, because they're the kind of highlights that bring fans through the through the gates and and have them watching on TV, is everything we know about Tests rugby is that it's a completely different arena and it's so hard to get away with the same stuff that you do at provincial or club level uh, as it is at, at Test level. And um, you know, I think the obviously the 2011 World Cup was an absolute where he took a beating in New Zealand both on the field and off it. Um, you know, knocked him around, but. We've seen the reincarnation of, of Quaid, um, how he's changed his life off the field. He was, you know, even as we, we've failed to mention so far that he and Marcus Smith sharing, you know, tips on on how, on preparation and and how they set themselves for game day. And, you know, that's the world we, we live in now. So, look, uh, Quaid, I, I think it's still deep within him. And I think it, at times he has to hold himself back from some yeah. of those, those instincts that, um, you know, are essentially 
in his game. But um, for me, if if the Wallabies are going to beat England, he's got to do exactly what he did against the Springboks last year and and just settle things down on occasion and boot the ball down the middle of the paddock when he has to. And um, because that was something that that Noah Lolasia couldn't quite get into his game to that point last year was that the understanding of of the space that was available and and putting boot to ball in the right times. But a fascinating, you know, head to head, if that's the way it goes, of course, with, with Marcus Smith at, at number 10 and Quaid at, at number 10, um, uh, you know, we talk about sort of matchups and, and sidebars and talking points for, for the series. That's, uh, that's certainly one, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I think we will see those two start at number 10. I think it's pretty obvious. And it was interesting that Eddie Jones was lauding Quade Cooper with praise by saying that he plays and, um, he suits a Dave Rennie style game. I don't know if you can ever believe everything that Eddie Jones says. Maybe he's trying to get Quade Cooper to start at 10. Who, who knows? Um, Ed, who, who's one player or one or two players that you that you either know or you think that Australian audiences are about to know a lot more of over the next three, four weeks? So it's a good question. Um, and off the top of my head, uh, I'd like to see, I, I guess, for me, watching Ellis Genge this year, I think he's really cementing his place as that starting loose head. For England, I'd like to see him with ball in hand a lot more and in the face of the Wallabies. I don't know if, if guys know a great deal about him in Australia because he's, you know, maybe sat a little bit behind Vanapola or... You know, we've got Carl Sinclair on the other side that maybe grabs some of the headlines with how he can play with the ball. But Ellis Genge is someone certainly I'd like to see um, with more opportunities, more minutes on the park. But beyond that, I think, you know, as, as we talked about earlier in the pod, is with those tried and tested players and Billy and, and Danny Kerr coming back in, I don't think we'll see a huge um, deal of surprise in, in the England 15 or 23. You know, we've got Johnny May back in. Jack Knowles has been playing the last couple of weeks. So I think you'll kind of see a fairly familiar England side. But Ellis Genge is probably one of those players that's had a fantastic year for Leicester. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how he goes over the series. I can't quite remember, but I think it was against Ireland that Ellis Genge just played out of his skin where there might have been one or two yellow cards. or perhaps the, red, the red card to Charlie yeah, Ewells, yep. Yeah, the early red. And, and Ellis Genge was immense that match. So I think that's a good shout. And and from, look, purely we, we live in the, the world and down here of AFL and I think Freddie Stewart, just what he offers is something quite extraordinary in the air. We got a taste of that during that English-French game. So... That matchup will be intriguing from a not just how he he how athletically gifted he is, but you compare him with what he's going to come up against with the Wallabies, and this is I think a couple of the really big decisions that Dave Rennie's got to decide on in his outside backs because we know that Tom Banks has been underwhelming in his nineteen tests to date, and he'll probably be given first crack at fullback, but. Freddie Stewart's going to dominate that aerial battle. And, and does Dave Rennie decide to put Jordan Pataya on the wing to try to, um, you know, negate some of that? Because Pataya, I think, is the best in the air in Australia. Or, or does he eventually, I don't think he will in the first test, but does he consider Sully Bunavalo given that he too is, is very impressive in the air? So 
oh, there's some some great matchups that's going to take place, and the kicking game is going to be fascinating. Hopefully, we don't see how, as many kicks as we did as in the English Premiership final, but there's many ways that you can kick that can be creative, that can be attacking to get the ball back. So I'm fascinated by it. Hey guys, if you like this podcast and you like footy, why not join myself, Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and champion data's Christian Jolly as we break down all things footy with the help of the game's best statisticians. Get the ESPN footy podcast wherever you stream your podcasts every Tuesday. Ed, what do you think the the feeling is within the England squad around this Wallabies team? Um, and, and what kind of confidence as a player, I guess, do you take from having a record that says, yeah, we've beaten these blokes the last eight times they've stood in front of us? Um, are you, you're not going to be scared about that? Oh, that's about to end. But I guess just how, how much added confidence does that, does it put within you when you, um, you know, that the recent record is, is so strong? No doubt. It definitely gives you confidence. You know, the last time they're down there, I think 2016, am I right? You know, when they got yep. the three nil win, uh, still a lot of players that played in that series that are in the squad now. Um, so I think, They'll kind of breed confidence into the into the other players. Um, I think you know the the areas typically all you know, particularly as a lot forward is you look look to the forwards, don't you? And I think that's the area that England will go. We'll pick them off there because they've brought in Richard Cockrell. Um, since he's come in, I think they're line out that they're, they're more. And their scrum has, has been a lot better. And I think that they'll look at, uh, at the ways and can pick them off. And with Quay Cooper playing behind, it'll be that game of patience. You know, and that, when you're talking about Quay, the first thing that sprung to me was, you know, he's matured as a player, but, you know, can he still play that game of patience? Is there a point in the game lose it a little bit because he's getting frustrated and decides to, you know, that, that maverick comes out? But we haven't seen that as much, like you've said. But if England are on top up front and they're not getting, you know, they're not getting the ball that they want, the Wallabies, you know, perhaps that's a tactic that England will go with. But they'll target the forwards, no doubt. I think set piece, they'll be in the face of Australia and trying to rattle them there. Christy, with that in mind, and I think that's always the way when we talk about England, Australia games is that um, they'll probably target the set piece. So they always fancy that they have got the superior set piece. Does that then negate what Samu Karevi did for the Wallabies last year? Or has he still got that ability to, to get Australia going forward off perhaps a platform that, that isn't so much front football, but, but somewhat static. Uh, no disrespect to Ed, but I think he's probably uh, underestimating this this Wallabies pack. Like, let's be honest, he, the the Aussies that rocked up at Twickenham last November were missing, I think they were missing Taniela Tupo, Alan Alalatoa. They had no Samu Karevi. They'd obviously had no Quade Cooper or Marika Korobetti. Now, it looks like Taniela is going to be missing, which is a, which is a huge loss. But you're going to have an Alalatoa who is... Um, if he's not world-class, he is very much capable of starting and he has obviously for 30, 40 tests. So I, I, I think that the it's going to be a very even battle from a physicality perspective. The one area where I sense that the Wallabies are potentially a bit vulnerable is, is, is maybe at the line-out. You look at Otoja, and I know that the English weren't brilliant during the Six Nations at times there, but they've got 
traditional Irish lines at hooker and Atosia there. You've got a Tom Curry there. Um, you know, Jamie George and Luke, Luke Cowan Dickey are, are world-class players. Um, that's where I'd be targeting this Wallaby side at two and at fullback. And, and I think they're, they're positions that Australia is vulnerable, but are the strengths of this English side. So, Look, Karevi at 12 is, is a huge, huge plus. So I think he'll be, I think he will be the difference because without Amanu Tuolangi, England, uh, you know, you only have to read Eddie Jones's book. And then I was, I was going through a few pages coming back from Chicago last week where he's talking about the fact that he likes to play on Farrell at 10 and Manu at 12 just to be able to conjure and Samu, Samu Karevi. He recognises how big a presence he is in the midfield and, Australia haven't always had that. And even going back to 2016, you know, there was baby watch with, you know, no Kurt, Kurtley Beal, who was out at the last moment. Um, Quade Cooper was overseas. Uh, Christian Leofano was going through and had his baby in the lead up to the first test. There were a lot of things that went against this Australian side leading into that first test. I think this side's quite a settled one at the moment. Um, We've got no distractions at the moment up at Sanctuary Cove. They're a million miles away from everyone and the most of the media. Um, they're not getting out into the city lights. This is going to be a, a side that's extremely well prepared, I think. So I, I think England, this is Eddie Jones's toughest test for, for sure. Yes, uh, boys. Well, it's probably about time we uh, we get some some series, some bold series tips um i'll uh i'll throw to christy first and uh, ed you can uh, you can follow up from there blimey it's this kind of time where you you, you are tossing it up i think australia are, are good enough and should win 2-1 unless there's a, a red card in there which you know there's a strong chance and those sorts of things influence the game a lot at the moment i i think that there's 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 reasonable depth. There's strong depth in the midfield and and particularly in, even in the outside backs. But if there's one area where where as I said earlier that England will target, I think it is those at, at fullback and uh, winning the lineout is going to be imperative. But I think Australia two one and I, I would if England their only hope is to win in, in Perth. I think if they don't win in Perth, it could be a long series. There you go, Ed. <laughs> away I go uh, yeah. no I think I think Chris has summed it up pretty well there but obviously you know my my leanings will be more towards England and you know again I think 2-1 is fair um, I expect that first test is going to be huge for England if if they will get that win um, and it's going to be a huge challenge I think with the travel preparation Um so it's going to hinge on that a lot, but I, I think with the quality England have, have got, I'd expect them to come out of it with a win, and, and I'd say 2-1 as well, because I, I am excited to see this all of this squad. And, and Chris, you're right, they've got some fantastic individuals, particularly, you know, the bat line is horrifically exciting. Um, and there are some great forwards individually, but I just think collectively England will probably just have a bit too much for them. If England are to win, is it who's the difference? Is it Owen Farrell? Because they were supremely inconsistent throughout that, that Six Nations, and they have been for two years, really. Well, it will be it will be that it'll be that nine ten axis, I think. Uh, who starts at nine? Well, for me, will be a really interesting call um, because, as you said, I think Farrell will be playing twelve because it's an area where I think Australia is stronger than us in the centres. 
Um, so that 9-10 axis, will it be Karen Smith, which, which I, I would expect, but you can't be certain because Harry Randall's been playing. But if that's a combination and then with Farrell added outside that, then that, I think that could make a huge difference for us. Yeah, Owen v uh, Samu at 12 is going to be fascinating. And Owen probably better make sure he's wrapping those arms and those tackles because he has got a little bit of a penchant to uh, to go Just in drop, more drop in the that. In the, in the rugby league style. But of course, we've had uh, our fair share of issues down here in, in Super Rugby as well, mate, as I'm sure you've probably seen. Uh, and uh, Christy and I have uh, managed not to talk about it for the last two podcasts. So we've, uh, we won't start. Now, uh, boys, I'm also going to go 2 1. I think the, uh, I think the Wallowies, uh, I think they'll win this weekend. And I think they will then win next weekend. And I reckon England might just finish over the top in Sydney. So I'm going 2 1. Uh, Australia winning the first two with England. The third uh, and yeah, fascinating series awaits. So uh, I, I think we've been looking forward to it all year, and uh, it's finally rolling around. Christy, you're headed west on uh, on Wednesday, mate. Is that right? Yeah, heading west on Wednesday. It should be good fun. And you only had to look at State of Origin on Sunday tonight to to really get a picture about how stunning Optus Stadium is, and it will be you know interesting that it's an oval. It's obviously it's not your traditional rectangular stadium, so. I reckon the English would have benefited from being there on Sunday night and just seeing little bits and pieces, you know, even the booming kick there from Burton uh, and how high it goes. I think it's a great opportunity for the English to have seen it. I know Marcus Smith was sitting in the stands. Well, I think that's that's a little, little, little bonus there for the English there. Ed, a couple of pints Saturday morning for you, mate, to uh, cheer on the boys. What's the plan? <laughs> Uh, what is the plan? It's a good way. I'll be coming back from Greece. So I'll probably need a couple of points just to put a smile back on my face. Um, <laughs> but mate, what, I'll be watching with intrigue if I can, uh, if I can get the kids in another room and, and shut the door, but we'll see. They might be using me as a, a playground. Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, mate, um, thanks very much for, for your time and, uh, and carving out a slice of your, your Greek holiday. We're very jealous here on a, a chilly or chilly by Sydney standards, uh, Monday night here, uh, here in Oz and, uh, yeah, just, uh, counting down the days to, uh, to Saturday. So mate, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me on guys. Great to speak to you. Cheers, Ed. <laughs>